what are you doing for your nervous system? How, you, how are you keeping your nervous system young? And then if we go to our feet, how are you keeping the required foot functions there so that you can move longer? Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi guys, welcome to the podcast. Happy Monday. I don't know about everybody else, but I am feeling like I'm finally falling back into some semblance of a normal routine after the holidays and after the new year. I'm finally back at a more consistent sleep schedule. I'm cooking all of my meals at home for myself. And I'm back on a normal training routine, which has been so much fun and my body is thanking me for so much. Over the holidays, I tend to do a lot of one-off workouts. I just kind of work with what I have, where I am in whatever time frame that I can. If I have 30 minutes to move, then I condense something down to 30 minutes. But normally throughout the year, I'm following a strength training program and I love that consistency of following a program and tracking my progress week to week with the same exercises. It's really good for me mentally, but obviously great for my body physically as well to be able to progress like that. Although I feel like I'm settling into a routine, there has been one blip in the radar these past couple weeks that has made things a little bit crazier than they would normally be. We decided that we're going to move. And the reason that we're moving is not because we don't love the place that we're in, because we do. It's an awesome townhouse in downtown Toronto. Great location, right south of Trinity Bellwoods. We love it. It's great for Molly. But the one minus of it is that it is impossible to entertain in this place. So it's a townhouse and it's really tall. We have probably like five or six different floors. So it's very tall and skinny, which means there's not one open space that I can have people over to actually have a meal, hang out, have some drinks. Like it's just not possible in this house. So I feel like I never invite anyone over to my home, which I really don't like. I love to have people over. So we decided to end our lease on February 1st, and we thought we might move over to the east end of Toronto, which if you don't live in Toronto, the east end is kind of far from downtown, but it's definitely an up and coming area of the city. And since we've lived on the west side for so long, we were kind of thinking, maybe we'll just try something new. So we came back after the holidays and we were fully expecting to be able to find a place pretty quickly. Of course, that hasn't quite turned out to be the case. We've been doing some hunting and we're just not finding exactly what we want. Actually, I take that back. Last week, we did find exactly what we wanted, but we put an offer in like hours too late. Like we were so close, but we got a call that someone else had already swept it up before we could. And of course, I had my hopes up over it because it was perfect. It had a huge space to entertain. It had a yard. I was picturing having people over all summer. So I kind of got my hopes up over that and it was a bit of a letdown when we didn't get it. I'm just trying to remind myself in this process that this will work out the way it's supposed to. 
you kind of have to just trust and surrender here because I don't actually know where I'm going to be living in two weeks from now, but I know that something will come up. We'll find the area that we're supposed to be in. Everything just feels a little bit up in the air right now, which has been a bit weird. So if you do live in Toronto and you know of any properties that are up for rent, let me know. Okay, enough about that. On the podcast this week, I have a really, really cool guest and cool episode to share with you guys. We're talking all about feet in this episode, which might seem a little odd to dedicate an entire podcast to feet, but by the end of this episode, you will know why feet are so important. You'll know why feet are so important, and you will also be very motivated and inspired to walk around your house barefoot and train barefoot after you listen to this. The feet are so closely integrated and connected to all parts of our body, and my guest on this episode, Dr. Emily Splickle, explains exactly why that's the case and why we really should be paying a lot more attention to our feet than we do. As a New York-based podiatrist, human movement specialist, and global leader in barefoot science and rehabilitation, Emily Splickle has developed a keen eye for movement dysfunction and neuromuscular control during gait. She looks at how people move and the ways that people aren't moving properly and connects it back to their feet. She approaches every patient with the belief that we hold the power to our health and well-being in our own hands, which I absolutely love that philosophy. It's so true. She's very passionate about functional and regenerative medicine as well, and the role of anti-aging science as it relates to movement longevity, which we touched on briefly in this episode. It was cool to hear her talk about that. She also provides a ton of content online and speaks about the importance of proper foot activation as it relates to stabilization and then also training. I think everyone is going to learn a lot from this podcast. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Emily Splickle. Hi, Emily. Welcome to How Do You Feel? I'm so excited to have you on and talk to you today. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to talk all about feet because that is your specialty and it's it's a topic that I just from a personal standpoint have noticed makes such a difference in my movement and training in the gym, but it's something that I haven't gotten a chance to talk about or learn about very much. So I'm really excited for this hour with you. First of all, let's just start off on a macro level. Why should we care about our feet? Why are our feet so important? I mean, our feet are our foundation. If you want to think of it from maybe like an analogy of a building or a house, that if you think of the foundation of that building or that structure, if it's not sound, if it's not stable, the rest of that building or structure is not going to be stable. Mm -hmm. That exact same analogy, of course, happens with the body, thinking flat feet, pronated, you're collapsed in. That's going to start to affect your knees, your hips, your back. It cascades all the way up. Um, You can, of course, connect shoulder issues and headaches, even with flat feet or foot imbalances, because it's just how connected the body is. And then my personal fascination is the sensory connections that we get from our feet, not just, you know, it's bones and joints that are structurally holding our foundation or the rest of our body up, but 
looking at the feet as a gateway into the nervous system. So the more that we connect to our feet, technically that could translate to faster core stability, faster glute activation, um, the way that we perceive the ground, the way that we stabilize. So it's definitely very important to understand feet and to appreciate them and really know how to optimize their function before we start experiencing, let's say, foot pain. Mm-hmm. I feel like the feet, you're talking about how they relate to so many different things, but it's often the last piece of the puzzle that we think of, especially when we're in the gym and you know, you don't hear trainers talking about activate your feet like they talk about activate your glutes or make sure your core is braced. So I feel like it's such a missing piece. Um, and I'm really excited to dive into a lot of these little pieces that you're talking about. I've heard you talk about different foot types. Can you tell me about the different foot types and maybe what they mean? Uh, yes. Yeah, so there's many foot types. We'll keep it broad here. So the, some of the general classifications that you can think of the feet is looking more at it from a biomechanical perspective would be flat feet on one side of the spectrum or overpronation, if any of the listeners are familiar with that term. And then of course, you're hitting smack in the middle. That would be a neutral foot. And then go to the other side of the spectrum, and that would be a high arched uh, or cavus, cavus foot or oversupinated foot, right? So you're on, on the extreme of both of these sides. Now, when you go a little bit more towards the flat foot or the overpronation, I like to kind of describe that as, a, as an unlocked foot. And pronation is definitely important in ideal foot function. It's just when we deviate a little bit more on that overpronated side that we lose some of the foundational stability of that foot. Um, the ability to generate power from that foot is a little bit more difficult. So they're at risk for certain injuries because of being in an unlocked, we'll use quote unquote, unstable foot. And then, of course, you deviate to the center, which that's your neutral, that's your ideal foot position. It can go back and forth between locking and unlocking or pronating and supinating or becoming mobile and stable in a very controlled way because it moves within this small window of range of motion. And then you move all the way to the other side, which is the higher arch, the cavus, the oversupinated. That foot type is classically uh, a little bit more rigid we'll use quote unquote stiffer, it's locked. So they have issues with interacting with the ground sometimes. Um, maybe their experience with impact forces is not as efficient as let's say the neutral foot. They're at a little bit higher risk of let's say a stress fracture or certain types of plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, um, IT band syndrome might be a little bit more on that side even though you can see a lot of these injuries in both of the extremes. So flat foot, you of course could get plantar fasciitis, a high arch foot, you could get plantar fasciitis. Slightly different reasons. Can you tell us about what plantar fasciitis is and why someone might get it? Yeah. So plantar fasciitis is one of the most common complaints or presentations, diagnoses that we see as podiatrists. Uh, it is inflammation of the insertion of the plantar fascia which the plantar fascia is a thick band of tissue on the bottom of the foot. It, for the listeners, if they still don't connect with that, put your hand on the bottom of the foot where your arch is and keep your hand there and then take your other hand and flex your toes back. So bend your toes back, keep your hand on the bottom of the foot. You should feel like there's a, a band of tissue that kind of popped out or you tightened, you pulled on it. That's your plantar fascia. The purpose of the plantar fascia is it plays a role in how we 
stabilize the foot from an integrated fascial perspective. Uh, don't want to keep throwing more words that go into a rabbit hole down here, but <laughs> stabilizes the foot uh, rapidly for efficient movement or energy transfer. It's fascia or tendinous connective tissue, which is supposed to be like a rubber band. So when we move with fascia and tendons and connective tissue, we're like how little kids just move effortlessly or like a dancer or a cat, <laughs> you know, like these, these ideas are very graceful. They're efficient. It's like, they're not exerting a lot of energy. That's ideally how we want to move. Now, when we start to get a little pulling on that tissue and you don't have the rubber band effect, we actually micro tear it. Mm-hmm. And then that micro tearing creates inflammation, which is pain. And then we get into this vicious cycle of micro tear, repair, inflammation. And that's what plantar fasciitis is. Okay. That makes sense. So if the fascia isn't um, mobile or elastic enough, then it can get aggravated under stress, like maybe um, improper movement patterns of the feet repetitively. And then that causes some irritation, some aggravation, which leads to plantar fasciitis. Is that yes. like a sort of layman's terms way to explain it? Yes, 100%. Okay. Now, the higher arch, the higher arch foot type, which is a little bit more rigid, in that foot type, you can actually sometimes feel the plantar fascia tight without even bending the toes back, right? Mm. So that means it's at baseline and stretch almost. So there, there's got to be some listeners right now that are saying, well, oh no, I can feel mine without even bending the toes back. Then what that is, is that's their foot type that's driving that stiffness. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So then they're way more susceptible to plantar fasciitis. Exactly. If you're talking about the overpronated foot, what are the, some of the things that people with that foot type are more susceptible to? Uh, So plantar fasciitis as well. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) for a different reason. Okay. So the reason that an overpronated foot would is that they're kind of grabbing at any of the structures to create stability that sometimes they get this uh, wearing down within that insertion of the plantar fascia. So that's one of the injuries. Some of the other ones would be um, bunions. They are more susceptible to getting bunions. Post-tib tendinitis, it's a muscle that becomes a tendon and it's the primary stabilizer of the foot. So posterior tibial tendinitis is very common. Um, knee issues, very common as well. And then of course, you know, other forefoot issues like hammer toes and, and neuromas, um, Taylor's bunions are, are more mm-hmm. common. And typically between the two foot types, overpronated feet do get a little bit more of the bad rap. Like they, they get more of the injuries, um, which is why I think a lot of focus when you, start researching foot types and foot imbalances, overpronation is commonly associated with most of them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm thinking of one client of mine specifically who she definitely has, she's a very hypermobile person overall, and she definitely has flat feet. I'm wondering if there are specific exercises that I could do with her in the gym to kind of start to activate her feet and get them into a more neutral position. What would you suggest for that? Yes. So I teach patients that have this overpronated flat, maybe hypermobile foot to learn to find neutral. So that's a really important step one to understand that pronation or most types of flat feet are a rotation in nature, a rotation inward 
that comes from the hip. So it starts in the hip. So the mm -hmm. hip is starting to internally rotate, the knees knock in or rotate inwards. And then of course the ankles do in the lower leg and then you collapse to the inside of the foot. So to get the client or the, the patient, the individual to feel that there's that spiral, I know you can see my arms, that there's a spiral that's happening versus lifting the arch isn't just like a vertical movement, it should be coming oh, of a rotation. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Okay. You need to actually like think about rotating the whole foot outwards, not just lifting up the foot, like lifting up the arch of the foot vertically. Exactly. Because okay. it is integrated with the rest of the body. It's deeply integrated with how our glutes and our hips rotate. So finding that rotation helps you to understand what neutral is. And I, I have videos like this on my YouTube channel explaining that. So patients or athletes, clients can feel that and appreciate that. That's the first one. Mm -hmm. And then the second is there's an exercise called short foot, which I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, but please share. <laughs> and short foot would then be done after you set your base to neutral, right? So you get into neutral, you've probably lifted your arch just because of the rotation. And now let's engage the small muscles in the feet. That's done through short foot, which is essentially pushing the tips of the toes down into the ground. That activates muscles called flexors and the flexors are then integrated fascially into your pelvic floor and your diaphragm so there's this deep connection that you activate those are my my two go-to's when you're starting to integrate foundational training can we talk more about the pelvic floor and diaphragm connection to the feet i think that's a really really interesting piece of this because they are connected fascially so why is it important that when you're activating your feet it's also good to then dial into what's happening with your pelvic floor maybe in some of your intrinsic core muscles and your diaphragm yeah so this is what i refer to as foot to core sequencing so in programming that I do, education that I've written, uh, I emphasize foot-to-core sequencing, which means that your body's foundation, foot, and then your body's center of gravity and center of stability, your core, have to connect with each other because that's how you control dynamic movement. That's how we're able to stand upright in gravity and be able to... Uh, move dynamically in gravity but your body and the ground are contacting and your center they just have to be in communication mm -hmm. um, so fascially they're connected but if they're functionally connected and they're fascially connected that means we need to train them to connect because they're not going to just connect especially if maybe you had a baby or you have low back pain or you had any other injury that might be out there where you sit a lot or you know um, it starts to lose that connection so when I teach short foot as the exercise, I'm not just having people push their toes down into the ground and, and then that's it and that's the exercise. Every time they push their toes down in the ground, I want them to actually lift their pelvic floor. And then when they lift their pelvic floor, they should be exhaling. So we're trying to match the rhythm of how the body actually stabilizes, which is anytime you exhale, your pelvic floor and your deep core muscles engage. So if I had the listeners inhale for, let's say, four seconds and then exhale for eight seconds, 
by the time they're getting to like six, seven, eight, and trying to get all that air out, they have no choice but to start getting into the deep core to get that exhale out. So that's starting to already show that rhythm of where and how the diaphragm and pelvic floor work together. And then of course you loop in the feet because that's where that stabilization would happen. That makes total sense. So interesting. And it's, I've heard you talk about a couple of these things before and it doesn't necessarily come supernaturally to be able to activate your feet and your pelvic floor and exhale all at the same time. Like it's definitely something that you need to teach your body. And it's just interesting that we've got to teach our body these things in order for it to make it a habit, right? And be able to do that. For example, when we're also doing a push up or a plank in the gym or something, right? To be able to translate it, we've got to practice these things. Yes. Um, Essentially what you're explaining, which is exactly right, is we have to set it into a subconscious pattern. Mm -hmm. And the subconscious patterning comes from obvious repetition, right? Conscious repetition. Um, Sometimes I give the analogy of thinking of um, anyone who's played like a musical instrument or a dancer or a gymnast, or I was, my background is that I was a gymnast and we would have to do the routine over and over and over. And I would like thousands of times we would have to do our beam routine. And it's so that it's so programmed in our mind that the stabilization pattern is happening before we even execute Mm. the back handspring or whatnot, right? We need that same thing happening when we walk or when we run because the reactivity has to be so fast that if you're thinking push toe down, exhale, lift pelvic floor when you're running, it's <laughs> mentally <laughs> exhausting. Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> it's not possible from, from a conscious perspective to do that. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about this sensory part of your feet that's so important. So um, why is it important that we do movements barefoot so that we get full sensory input into our feet? So the skin in the bottom of the feet are are designed to be like this auto adjuster with every step that we take so there's special nerves in the bottom of the feet they're called mechanoceptors which means that they respond to obviously mechanical stimulation (laughs) very specific mechanical stimulation being texture as one of them skin stretch is another of course there's pressure and then vibration so that's really what we get from the ground with every step that we take Now, being able to access those different nerves allows you to then better control your movement. So we could think of this as, let's say a runner. So if a runner can feel the ground faster, but more specifically feel the vibration faster, then they're going to stabilize faster. So I use barefoot activation for runners as a way to kind of access and open that part of the nervous system, um, wake it up essentially. And then if you think of like dancers, a majority of dance is done barefoot. Yes, there's um, you know some styles that do wear shoes, but a lot of dancers just, they want to feel the ground. They're very connected to their feet. And that's, that's what allows them to move so gracefully is that they're essentially one with the stimulation of the ground. Now, when we lose our ability to sense the ground, let's say we have neuropathy or we had a stroke, then it's very evident how much their gait is impacted because of how unstable they look. They walk so much slower, they start to fall. And that's because they've taken away that really important 
access point from a sensory perspective. Yeah, that makes total sense. How do shoes have an impact on this? Because essentially, we're taking a lot of the stimulation that we feel from the ground and the floor away every time that we wear shoes, and especially the really padded runners that everyone wears all the time, right? So how does, how does that play a role? Yeah, so shoes are very um, are a huge contributor to a stabilization delay. Is, is really how I look at them. So when I see certain injuries in my office, stress fractures, plantar fasciitis, I blame a lot of it on shoes, on the sensory delay that it causes, right? So probably the most important stimulation that comes in when we move dynamically is vibration. And that's because it's what impact forces are. So every time our foot hits the ground, you are experiencing and sensing vibration. Now, if we put cushion in a shoe, the cushion obviously absorbs the vibration so that the vibration doesn't get to the skin and we start to lose that sensory input, which if you take away that sensory input, then it starts to skew our perception of how hard we're striking the ground. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will strike harder, so then they get excess impact forces, um, overuse injury rate goes up, sometimes the inaccuracy of that movement goes up. So if you were doing, imagine you were doing trail running with like a really thick, I don't know if you know what a hoka is? No. So a hoka is like a fat shoe, like there's a lot of cushion on it. Wow, like two inches? Yeah, like one and, a half, one and a half, Holy. two inches on it. Yeah. That imagine if you were trail running with that, the subtlety of like a rock or a twig or something, right? Or a hole, right? Is going to be very hard to detect that you could say, okay, either you're going to run much slower or your injury rate goes up or the accuracy of your foot placement is going to be off. So yeah, shoes are definitely something that people want to consider. How much cushion is in them? Um, what are the materials that they're using? What is that interface? And how can we modify it to bring in more sensory information? How does wearing shoes for our whole lives affect our feet's ability to feel all of these vibrations and all of the sensory input? Does it kind of downregulate that the more that we're wearing shoes? 100%. There is some research that was done around shod. So shod just means wearing shoes. Mm -hmm. Shod individuals that when they wear shoes chronically, which is what almost everyone does. All of us. <laughs> for let's say... Um, say you're 50, you know, you've pretty much worn shoes for 50 years, right? So every day, majority of your day for 50 years. I mean, that's a lot of disconnect. They show that the peak sensitivity of the nerves in the feet is age 40. And then by the time you're 70, you need twice as much information mm. to create the same response. So that that's showing the chronic effect of shoes, which to me, that's convincing enough to have your peak sensitivity age 40. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be 70 and then already be at a high fall risk because of that effect. That has nothing to do with, you don't have neuropathy, you don't have any medical conditions, you just wore your shoes every day <laughs> and now you're at a fall risk. Like that. Yeah. You know. Wow. So interesting. Let's go into a little bit about movement longevity. I know it's something that you're interested in. You've talked a lot about. So having healthy feet translates to having, being able to move well as you get older. Can you tell us why that is and maybe why um, 
training maybe barefoot or having good foot health is so important, especially as you age and get older. Yeah. So again, this does go back a little bit more towards the sensory, just really understanding and appreciating that the only contact point between the body and the ground is the foot. And it's more specifically the skin in the bottom of the foot. So if that's the only contact point, it obviously is a critical access point to how, how we maintain movement, right? A majority of movement is on your feet, right? So you're walking, you're running, you're playing, you're dancing, you're, you know, skiing, you're, think of any, you know, thing you want to do. You're playing with your grandkids, you know, it, it involves this foot ground relationship so that you can control your posture and your movement dynamically in gravity. I'm, I'm fascinated with the evolution of movement. Like how do we learn to walk? What allows us to walk where no other primate walks, right? No other uh, animals were able to walk the way that we do. So what's different about us? What's different about our nervous system? What's different about our musculoskeletal system that allows that? The uniqueness of our foot and the uniqueness of our pelvis is what allows us to walk, which means the foot muscles, the foot structure, the shape of the arches are very different from other animals that our foot allows us to become a lever, like a push-off position. Like if you're doing a calf raise, when you do a calf raise and the foot gets into that position, almost like a high heel position, we're able to achieve that because of the arches in our foot. So if we lose the ability to to get that position we lose the ability to walk efficiently so understanding or thinking of movement longevity um, one i'm obsessed with anti-aging science <laughs> I, just, I just want to like look young forever and you know <laughs> i don't know i just i love movement and i love anti-aging so i blended them just because of my education and have really kind of spearheaded or just shaped everything around this concept of movement longevity. So thinking of movement longevity, if we're, you know, living young, uh, living longer and looking younger, longer, <laughs> we obviously want our movement to match both of those as well. So if we think of movement longevity is more than just, oh, stay strong and make sure you have good bone density and like actual, you know, strengths, you can pick up stuff and, you know, all of that, be flexible, all of that's important, but then we still have to, what are you doing for your nervous system? How, you, how are you keeping your nervous system young? And then if we go to our feet, how are you keeping the required foot functions there so that you can move longer it, it's really important and it's it's a different spin on movement that i think is really really important and needs needs to have attention on it yeah how do you do that how do you keep your nervous system young yeah <laughs> so from uh barefoot stimulation i recommend that my my patients get at least 30 minutes of barefoot stimulation a day that could be even just walking around your home barefoot so it seems pretty easy to be able to get that. But the number of people that are in their shoes from like the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed is actually more than we might realize. My dad is a chronic shoe wearer. Even in his home, he literally always has his shoes on. Yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely a thing. Yes, yeah. exactly. Where it's like, okay, get out of your shoes, please. So uh -huh. 30 minutes, if you get more, that's great. So 30 minutes every day 
uh, barefoot stimulation, and then two to three times a week, another 30 minutes of focused foot strengthening. It could even be just a yoga class, yoga, Pilates, um, integrating short foot, doing kettlebells barefoot, whatever, whatever it is. But your workout, if you blend in foot strengthening or barefoot with that, then that's what I recommend. Um, really, it's why I started the Noboso products was to get more stimulation. That's not all that much. That's very doable. Yeah. That's super sustainable. I mean, exactly. 30 minutes a day, no yes. problem. Yeah. Yes. Um, modify your footwear so that you can get, you know, more sensory inputs coming in. If you do wear supportive shoes, where could you potentially wear more minimal shoes? Like at the gym, right? Could you do some of your exercises in a more minimal shoe? And then when you're at work, wear a little bit more structured shoe just to kind of deviate around that. I recommend that people release their feet every single day, roll your foot on a golf ball, a cross ball, five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. So we're doing that and then making sure that you're just addressing the rest of it. You know, I have a, a handful of products that I recommend to patients for optimal foot function, but starting with some of that daily TLC for the foot is really important. Cool. What about socks? Same problem or uh, better or what's the deal with them? <laughs> socks is not barefoot. People will call it that, which I think is cute. <laughs> Just to put it nicely, they'll be like, I'm barefoot training and they have socks on and I'm like, it's not barefoot, but you're close. Right. <laughs> it's closer, closer. Uh -huh of where we want to get. Um, certain commercial gyms won't allow you to be barefoot, mm -hmm. but they'll allow you to wear socks. So it's a great, if we're moving in that direction, I give that an A plus, right? Like move in that direction. Um, but you still do want to take your socks off and get true, true skin to surface contact. Yeah. I, I'm actually, I have a dancing background and we used to obviously dance barefoot all the time, rehearsals all the time barefoot, but I got away from training and moving barefoot so much until recently. I always used to train in my socks. Like I, I, I hate training in shoes, but I would do kettlebell work and deadlifts and stuff in socks until recently when I decided I'm just going to start taking my socks off too. And holy crap, like I immediately felt like, well, first of all, I think my brain went back to I'm dancing now and the movement immediately just became more um, enjoyable for me. Mm -hmm. But I just felt so much more connected to everything, like every step I took to feel the floor beneath my feet. It just felt so much more purposeful and I was more present. I mean, I was pretty amazed at how big of a difference it made to go from socks to bare feet. And that's impressive with your background, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you could probably appreciate that deeper sensory environment mm -hmm. where, you know, I, my background is a gymnast. I do. What I find is really interesting is that a lot of people that might not be dancers or gymnasts or have a martial art, think of any sport that is barefoot, right? And they've spent really a majority of their athletics or their lifetime in shoes. They don't really know what they're missing, right? Mm -hmm. So their, their normal is what they are right now and they think that they're moving efficiently and they're like oh, i have no problems i have no foot pain this this is an environment why do i have to do that right and then they start to do some of the barefoot and it's just like whoa like <laughs> had i known that it was this so i feel that that's mm -hmm. that's some of the big stuff that you see also what's interesting is that when i look at some of the barefoot research they'll take a group of athletes that normally wear shoes and then do the research study of barefoot 
movement prep, let's say that they're just warming up or they're doing some of their drills barefoot. Always at the end of the studies, they just add as a comment, um, all of the subjects wanted to continue doing barefoot after the study. <laughs> they were like, like, can I keep doing the barefoot or do I have to go back now that the research study is done? Like it's, it's interesting because they just, now they know they've been enlightened <laughs> into what it is. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like we just need to start talking about it more so that people actually try it because you're right, especially in these commercial gym spaces, it's just not even a thought in people's minds that I should be walking around barefoot. And maybe they even feel like it's kind of a social faux pas to, to whip their shoes off. But I don't know, we need to talk about it more because it makes a huge difference. hundred percent. That's why I'm like, thank you for having me on your podcast because it's just getting that awareness out there. Yeah, for sure. I want to know about your own training um, and what kind of training you do, the kinds of things that you gravitate towards in the gym. I'm assuming most of it's barefoot, but what does that look like? Yes. So I, I gravitate more towards body weight training. It's, it's just the gymnast in me. And then kind of deviating out of that a uh, couple years ago, maybe five years ago now, I started getting into aerials. Mm. So I do aerial silks. I do gymnastics rings. Um, I do straps. It's, it's, I'm actually not on the ground, <laughs> ironically. So I, I like to do hanging based movements, call it even like rock climbing. Like I love rock climbing. And my apparatus when I was a gymnast was the uneven bars. So it just was in me. <laughs> so the air is your medium. <laughs> exactly. But when I'm on the ground, let's call that when I'm on the ground, I'm usually doing barefoot, of course. Um, I like to integrate balance exercises into everything. So most of the lower body exercises that I'll do will all be done on one leg. So I'll do side lunges, reverse lunges, single leg squats, single leg deadlifts, step ups, curtsy squats, like literally every exercise that I do has a single leg element to it. Um, even when I do kettlebells, I do, there's a flow that I do that's all single leg kind of balance orientated on it. Part of the reason is I just really like balance training. Um, and then two, it's the most efficient. So most efficient way to access the glutes. So if you're trying to get like a good lower body workout, understanding, okay, a single leg is one functional, it's just something I believe in, but I want to just like get to the end goal of like glute activation a little bit more effectively or efficiently. So that's also why I incorporate single leg exercises. Yeah, that and makes sense. Especially releasing and, you know, tension based. And it's once you've, you've trained a certain way, whether it's like deep Pilates philosophy or a yoga philosophy, or for me, gymnastics, I just, I gravitate towards controlling my own body weight versus excess body weight. Yeah. Or like resistance, external resistance. Right. Adding a bunch of external load as opposed to just using your body's own levers and forces and balance. Yes. yes. Yeah. I treat a ton of runners like a majority of what I, what I treat is runners and obstacle course racing, um, dancers, of course, cause I'm in New York city, but, mm -hmm. um, a lot of endurance type, which is funny. Cause they always think that I'm a runner because I treat runners and I'm like, I don't like running. <laughs> <laughs> I'll run away from someone is about all that I'll do, but right. <laughs> want to catch the train. Yes. But not for exercise. Yeah. Running's not really my jam either. I feel you there for sure. <laughs> I always try and preach this to my clients that 
we need to think of all movements as full body movements and activating your feet and creating some tension in your feet is always a part of that. So especially on something like a pull up, actually activating into our feet. Can you just reiterate for me why that is and why that actually makes all of your movements stronger? I'm so glad that you said that because I do reference that as like the example to really appreciate how integrated, integrated the body is and the feet are not important just when you're on the ground. Your example of doing a pull-up and needing foot activation is, um, I guess the listeners would hopefully understand fascia. Yeah, generally, I think. At least they've heard the word for sure. <laughs> so uh, they can think of fascia and tension as, you know, obviously every part of the body is connected, connected from a bone perspective and a joint perspective, but also from uh, tissue, fascia, connective tissue that allows you to have, you know, the bottom of your feet run into your plantar fascia and then your calves and then your hamstrings into your rectus spinae all the way to the top of your head. Like it's one big piece of tissue. All of those fascial lines that run through the body, a lot of them actually cross the bottom of the foot. And then the one that we were referencing when we breathe and the pelvic floor and the foot, that one happens to be called the deep front line. It's just a name of one of those connected fascial lines. And it runs from the bottom of the foot, these small muscles in the feet, into the pelvic floor. And when you contract muscles isometrically, so like making a fist and you just hold the fist, hold the fist, it's a way to make tension. And the more tension you have in your body, technically the more stable you are, or you could quote unquote say stronger. Yeah. So if you're trying to generate more power internally and you're hanging on a bar trying to do a pull up, you could either be holding the bar and trying to like pull with your back muscles as much as you can. So your stomach isn't engaged, your legs are passive, and maybe you're just like praying you can get a few reps out, <laughs> right? Just using as much of your back as you can. That is working harder and less. Uh, harder, not smarter, I guess you could say, versus trying to, how can I generate as much tension or stacking in the body as possible? I call it tension stacking, which if you hold the bar and you grab a little bit more with fingers five and four, that engages a specific fascial line. So you don't have to like all five fingers don't have to be wrapping around like a death grip, but focus a little bit more on the pinky and the four, get that obviously stabilize in your scap and then engage the core, lifting the pelvic floor. And then to engage your feet, you, you technically have to point them, right? So plantar flex them and point them. So you're engaging the bottom of your foot. You're engaging your calves, your calves connect to your quads and your quads connect to your TVA. And then you have your fingers engaged, right? And your scap is set. Doing pull up that way is actually going to be easier and more efficient based off of tension, tension stacking, tension equals stability, stability equals power. So yes, keep doing that, keep engaging. That's why honestly, when I'm at the gym and I'm doing certain exercises like pull-ups, I'm either barefoot or I wear the five finger shoes. They're actually indoor shoes. So I wear like their Pilates yoga shoe mm -hmm. and I wear it because it, it doesn't have a, like a midsole through it that you can point it and fold it the other way. So I can really point my toes as much as I can, almost like as much as you probably can as a dancer. 
and the shoe won't limit that so that I can cool. get more strength during my pull-up even though I have a shoe on. Cool. That's awesome. I, you know, it's interesting. I actually normally, when I do pull-ups, I flex my feet, but it sounds like to optimize those fascial lines, I need to start pointing my feet. One actually pointed. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I can't wait to try this. Yeah, and then the, play with it. yeah. And then the four and five um, finger thing as well. I didn't know that either. I was just like death gripping with all of them. So yeah. yeah, I'm excited to go test this now. Yeah. A lot of people think that. And then one last little trick for your listeners is your thumb actually doesn't really play a role in that stability of the grip. So if you, they can't see, but if the grip is kind of over the top, which is actually how gymnastics is, is over the top, right? Your thumb isn't under the bar where other sports or just kind of general recommendations because they're concerned of safety. Mm -hmm. They say, put the thumb under the bar. Technically it doesn't matter where that thumb is from a strength perspective. So the listeners are like, well, no, I feel stronger with it on top. But then they think that it's supposed to be on the bottom to be stronger, quote unquote, stronger. They can go ahead and put the thumb and you could technically just put the thumb straight out and do it that way. Right. Cool. Interesting. Good tips. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. That's awesome. Okay, Emily, I think that we've covered everything that I, that I had. I just have one final question for you, though. This is something that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. What makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? It's mm, a good question. Um, well, so right now, I'll give you the answer before I had my baby. <laughs> because I have a five-month-old baby. So Aww, congrats. Mine is, yeah, no, definitely. Um, Hearing her with her little goo goo gaga because now she's starting to do that definitely wakes me up and I'll laugh, <laughs> even though it's like super early and I'm quasi annoyed that I didn't get sleep last night. But you can't like you can't falter because it's so cute. Um, but <laughs> otherwise, I'm excited every day. I don't feel like my job is a job or my career is a job, right? Like my mission of of having people think of the feet from a different perspective and whether I'm seeing patients or I'm running Naboso or I'm writing or I'm consulting or I'm doing an interview, whatever it is, my message continues through every facet of what I do. Um, And I definitely feel that that's my purpose to share that message. So of course my days do not feel like work and that definitely gets me out of bed in the morning. That's awesome. If people are interested in learning more, Um, if they want to hear more from you or connect with you, how would they do that? How do they find you on social? I know you have a couple of programs out, um, that are available for people. Can you just let us know how we find those? Absolutely. So I'm on Facebook, which is, um, just my name, Dr. Emily Splickle. I'm on Instagram, um, Dr. Emily DPM. That's my personal page. And then, um, I wrote a book called Barefoot Strong. It's available on Amazon, but you can also get it on barefootstrong.com. And then I do education. I have a YouTube channel, which is linked to EBFA Fitness. And there's actually a lot of consumer or client-focused content on there. There's exercises and, and educational material that's put into consumer 
verbiage. And then um, I also run Naboso, which is a textured insulin mat company. Mm -hmm. So that's nabosotechnology.com, YouTube links to ebfafitness.com. If people can't remember any of that and they just Google Dr. Emily Barefoot, you will get all the stuff you need. <laughs> Amazing. That's the easy way to do it. The other easy way is I'm going to put all of that in the show notes so people or there you go. click that's those links. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. This has been really educational and really fun. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? If you enjoy what you're hearing on the podcast, I would love if you could do two things. First of all, make sure that you rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really go a long way. And then second, I ask that you share it with someone in your life that you think could benefit from the stuff that we talk about on How Do You Feel? As a reminder, be on the lookout for an episode every Monday morning. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. All right, everybody, have an awesome week. And as always, make sure that you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.